According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 6 as we get started this morning. John chapter 6. Lost track of time. I was visiting with Sean. We were talking about the dispensation of the fullness of time. The next thing I knew, uh, the fullness of time was upon us. The fullness of that time, anyway. All right, John chapter 6. We are dealing with episode 39 in the life of Christ and the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Uh, we introduced it last week and got through a little bit, and uh, we're ready to proceed. We've got today and we've got next week to try to get through this material. Um, the two weeks after that, uh, we will not be having class. So did you want to still do prayer? Don't do prayer on the weeks I'm gone. All right, so you're off. Uh, we'll have next week, and then you'll have a three-week break, two-week break, coming back uh, the first Wednesday in June. PPP, the peak of popularity passes in Galilee. We're going to rename Galilee something with a P. The peak of his popularity passes. It's all downhill from here. The uh, feeding of the 5,000 was really the peak. And uh, the next day when he won't do it again, it's downhill. And you get the idea how ungrateful they are. You get the idea how selfish they are, where their priorities are throughout this chapter. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped to handle doctrinal truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we, thank, we are thankful this morning for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the freedom that our nation possesses where we, uh, we take it for granted far too often. Father, it is a grace provision. The fact that you've sustained it this long is a grace provision. So, Father, on this day, we want to uh, redeem the time for the days are evil. On this day, we want to set aside distractions and have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The material is found only in the Gospel of John. There are no parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels for this particular Bible class and the confrontation with the uh, crowd that uh, ate the loaves and was filled. We have called them the C-A-L-F. We gave them that label last week. The crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled. And unless uh, you're a speed rider or somehow you got some kind of miraculous shorthand, you don't want to write the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled 50 times between now and next week. So just call them the C-A-L-F and uh, you should do fine. Or create your own abbreviation. Um, but these guys are chasers. And as we introduced it last week, we can learn a lot from this episode because we live in a culture of chasers. You could even describe 20, 20th and 21st century pop culture American Christianity as one chaser after another chaser after another chaser. And we've seen it just in the last 10 years from the, the, the purpose-driven to the seeker-friendly to the prayer of Jabez to the uh, you name it. What's the next, what's the next craze going to be? And it'll come. It'll come like a flash. Uh, they'll sell millions of books. They'll have articles. They'll have conferences. They'll have, uh, it'll be 
the, the, the biggest feature on, on Dobson on the radio and everything. Everyone is going to chase after it until the next one comes along. And so people uh, ask, you know, are you excited about Purpose Driven? And when's Austin Bible Church going to do 40 Days of Purpose? And, uh, and all these other things. And, and you know, I don't... I don't uh, they got to answer to the Lord same as I do. And, and I'm not trying to be hypercritical or say that, you know, they're wrong in what they're doing. Uh, or that it's of the devil or that God doesn't bless it like promise keepers. Does God bless promise keepers? You know, but I don't plunge into the emotionalism or into the excitement of, of, of the activity because it's, they're coming and going, they're coming and going and, uh, try to have a more, uh, long-term approach to it and, uh, grace approach to it that if, uh, if, if you want to go to a promise keepers weekend, have fun. Glorify Christ, give him the glory in all that you say and all that you do. Uh, be a witness and be a testimony, but don't let yourself get so carried away with the emotion that the it's like a drug. It's like a high that when you come down off of it, you go through withdrawals like what's wrong with me? I don't have the same enthusiasm I had back then. So anyway, I think people really get disillusioned when they can't maintain that that zeal. They can't maintain that sense of excitement and uh as i shepherd I, I simply try to teach the flock to try to be a little bit more uh long term in your thinking and, and don't be tossed here and there you don't want to be tossed anyway so i think this episode what we studied last week we're studying today and next week as we look at these chasers i think we can really glean some very valuable lessons so this is the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled. We saw that they had chased him from the western side to the eastern side, and that we went through that before he even fed the 5,000, that they were the chasers. It's kind of interesting, the crowd that he came back to when he recrossed and he came back to the western side, when he did the healing at Gennesaret, and some people thought of that group as a bunch of chasers. Because they were running here and there. They were bringing people on pallets. They were lining them up. They wanted uh, to touch the fringe of his garments. And there was some movement there that people might think of as a chasing movement. But it wasn't chasing so much as it was accommodating his arrangements in the villages that he went through there in the Gennesaret region. And so rather than inconvenience him, they accommodated to his schedule within his tour of the Gennesaret region. So I do not view in episode 38, the healing of Gennesaret, I do not view them as chasing because they maintained the, the position uh, when he came to their region in the region of Gennesaret. In other words, they didn't leave regions, as it were. It'd be like if a speaker, uh, if, a, if a conference was coming to Austin and they had a dozen venues over a week's period of time here in the, in the Austin area. And we might accommodate ourselves to that and go to the different venues on the different days so long as it was still here in our area. But when the tour moves on and goes to uh, Oklahoma, you know, if we then we become chasers. Does that make sense? And so this crowd, they were chasers. They chased from the western side to the eastern side and then they chased them back to the western side as opposed to the Gennesaret crowd who stayed there in their region, waited until his next return visit. And uh, and then got busy once he was in town. Uh, some more sub points on that. We'll pass by point two. There's your map on Galilee. You, you probably have similar maps in the back of your Bibles or maybe you have your own atlas at home. Uh, there are a number of different products. Baker has a good Bible atlas that uh, that's available. Uh, but now we're back on the western shore 
the plain of Gennesaret being on the northwest corner there, uh, Capernaum being the boundary of the Gennesaret region. We saw last week under point two that the real issue was an issue of salvation. They wanted their bellies filled, but there was much more important food they needed to partake in. So the crowd that ate the loaves and was filled did not need any more physical food. They needed salvation. And uh, we try to draw similar uh, correspondences with people. We try to draw similar um, concepts when people come and they have food needs. They have physical needs. They have clothing needs. They have financial needs. They have addiction needs. They have treatment needs. Yes, those are legitimate. And we can address those. And we may address those once or twice. But again and again and again and again, we might say, wait a minute. The real issue is you need Christ. You need salvation. You need to be saved. Because if you're still unregenerate and we, we, we fix a physical problem, we haven't really solved the spiritual issue, have we? So it comes up for an application in our realm as well. They need salvation. In verses 26 through 29, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you. He says, Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. This is the God who cannot lie. And yet he takes an oath of truthfulness and doubles it with the amen, amen. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says, stop working. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. That's what they need. They need to be saved. And whether or not they eat another meal, you think if they never eat another meal again, that's tragic. They're going to they're gonna starve to death. They're going to physically die. That's pretty sad, isn't it? But it's not as sad as spiritual death, the fact that they're going to die without hope, without Christ, without eternal life. So more important than ever eating your next physical meal is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And then we'll feed you <laughs> as far as that goes. Uh, so this is the calf. They didn't need any more physical food, and yet they had been satisfied. They were filled. And we did a little bit of vocabulary with cortazzo, not as much, but uh, cortazzo meaning to feed, and it's really typically used to feed animals. It would be unusual to use it for feeding people, uh, but it does have that application in the New Testament. An amazing parallel with that Exodus generation. This crowd is the Exodus generation of their time. The crowd that walked through the Red Sea, that was miraculously delivered, and then within a month of being in the wilderness, they're grumbling at Meribah. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're rebelling, they want to go back to Egypt, they think they had it made. They had eaten, and they had eaten to the full. And yet, remember, the, the, the darkened mind, if you're darkened in your understanding, your, your perspective is, is, is off. And it could be 180 degrees off from divine viewpoint. And, and you find yourself satisfied with what doesn't satisfy. And so uh, if you missed it last week, I'd encourage you to, to listen to the MP3 file and review particularly what we talked about there in Exodus chapter 16. Finally, where we ran out of time, we were discussing the imperative of verse 27. Jesus ordered the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled to work for the right kind of bread. And then he defines that work as faith alone in Christ alone. And so in verse 27, um, where I communicated my displeasure over the beginning here, where it says, do not work. I don't like the fact that the verse begins with do not work because the Greek verb there begins with work. It's a command to work. And, it's, and we can use the same 
idiom in English, I can say work and then include a not and a for to contrast it. And that's what this passage does. The imperative is work, which I showed you last week. I can put it up here again. We can do the same thing in English. I can say, uh, I can say, don't eat beef, eat chicken, right? Or I could put the imperative first. I can say, eat, not beef, but chicken. You see how that works? I put the imperative first. I say, eat, not the beef, but the chicken. And that, that, to me, it's not just a, a, a nuance. It's not just a, a, a straining at a gnat or, or playing a word game. It is entirely the difference in, in the nature of the imperative. Because if all, I, if all I have to go by is the English text there, do not work for the food which perishes, I have divine authority to be a welfare deadbeat. My Bible says, do not work for the food which perishes. I'm going to quit my job. I don't have to work for food. Right? Bible says, don't work for the food which perishes. I don't have to work anymore. I, I, my government's going to take care of me or whatever. You know, I'll, I'll just demand food. Because the Bible says, don't work for the food which perishes. That kind of flies in the face of uh, other scriptures, don't you think? <laughs> Where if a man will not work, neither will let him eat. That kind of... Uh, spells it out in my mind anyway. So, no, the awkwardness goes away when we realize that the verse actually begins with a positive imperative. And this is the positive imperative right here. It means work. And uh, we can underline it. There it is. Work. The verb is work. You are commanded to work. You're not prohibited from working. You're commanded to work. And then when you're commanded to work, Two objects are contrasted, the one that it give, has to give way to the real priority. So he says work, not, and, and they're both bread, they're both bread objects. Tain brosen, tain brosen. So when he says work for bread, you could render this either work not for the bread which perishes, but for the bread which endures to eternal life, or you can say work for bread. Not the perishing bread, but the abiding bread to eternal life. One imperative. Two different breads, two different foods. The noun brosis meaning food. And then the food items are distinguished. The one you're not supposed to work for with a negative may is the apolumi perishing bread. I don't know if I've highlighted Apollumi enough, but this idea of perishing is what he saves us from. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Should not Apollumi is the verb. And the idea of, of being regenerate means that we are no longer the perishing ones. We are now the presently, eternally, continually being saved ones, having been saved ones. And so, and we still eat, we still eat earthly food, just like the unbeliever eats earthly food, but that is the food of this, of this, of this world, this world that's passing away, this body that's passing away, this world is passing away, this life is coming to an end. And so, uh, 
That's the one that's negated there with the may. The Allah then gives the, the but gives the positive thing we're supposed to, the bread we're supposed to, and that's the bread that abides to Zoane, Ionion, eternal life. So to reword this, let's not start verse 27 with do not work. Let's start verse 27 with work. And it is a, uh, it is an imperative. It is a command. And then it's work not. And uh, so since food is doubled up there, we can double it up in our translation and just say work. Not for the bread, not for the perishing bread, but for the abiding bread unto eternal life. They understood that he was commending them to work because they asked the question in verse 28, what shall we do? They understood that he was commanding them to work. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So this, uh, this becomes important. Obviously, in our terms of our salvation, there is nothing we can do to earn it. He does it all. But there's something we must do to receive it. And that's believe. Again, we're not playing word games. We're just using the scripture words. What must I do to be saved? Well, it depends. What do you mean by do? <laughs> what must you do to deserve it? Nothing. What must you do to earn it? Nothing. What must you do to make it happen? Nothing. What must you do to receive what he already did? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. All right. So Jesus ordered the calf to work, the C-A-L-F, to work for the right kind of bread and then defines that work as faith alone in Christ alone. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's described as a work, and yet it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is uh, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is described as a work in in one respect is described as a non-meritorious work in another respect, which is why we call it non-meritorious. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. If you ever encounter someone that's trying to earn their salvation, just tell them, you know, they're doing the wrong works. And then take them to that verse. This is, this is a wonderful verse to use with people that are trying to work for their salvation. All right, point three then. The CALF makes a startling admission in verses 30 through 34. I don't think they understood how they were giving themselves away when they did this. And, and you'll have fun sometimes when you're talking to an unbeliever and he tries to play stupid. And he tries to act like he doesn't know what you're talking about. And then he makes a statement that gives it away. And you can just nail him and say, oh, you do know what I'm talking about. Based upon the statement he just made. You do have a an orientation to to this they make a startling announcement here admission let's read together verse 30 so they said to him what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you what work do you perform in other words if he's commanding them to do a work or to do works then they want to know what work he's doing which is the sign of his authenticity which is the indicator of his credentials so that they will accept of the fact that he is speaking from God. That he is an authority. If he's not an authority, I don't have to do what he says. 
you know, if a police officer pulls me over, I've got to do what he says. Because he has a badge, he has a mark of authority, he has his credentials. But if he's just some, you know, some schmuck that, uh, that's Yiddish, by the way, I'm working on my Yiddish. If he's just some schmuck trying to pull me over, acting like he's a police officer, but he's not a, a true, legitimate officer of the state of Texas, show me your credentials. You don't have those credentials, I don't have to listen to you. Now, they make this startling statement. So what, uh, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? They, they, there's two steps. You've got to see the sign. You've got to recognize that it is a sign. And then, acknowledging that it is a sign, the second step is believe. See and believe. Believe the content of what has been revealed when your skeptic looks at you and says, oh, you just have this blind faith, slap them in a grace kind of way and say, it's not a blind faith. Only a blind idiot would call it a blind faith. No, it's placing confidence in a revealed message. I'm not just believing nothing. I'm believing the promises of God's eternal word. So you see the sign and believe. And then they give this helpful suggestion. You know, not only are they demanding a miracle, they're even suggesting what miracle he might do. And they say, you know what? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They're quoting scripture in their uh, begging for a miracle. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. But it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. You gave it to us yesterday. We're begging for it today. We really don't want to go through this hassle tomorrow. So let's go ahead and resolve it now that you're going to always give us this bread on demand whenever we want it. And we'll let you be our king, right? You see how carnally minded these guys are? And yet, their very admission, when they linked the sign with seeing and believing, they convicted themselves. They suggest, sub-point A, they suggest that a sign would be necessary for them to accept the divine origin of his message. They suggest that a sign would be necessary for them to accept the divine origin of his message. And, and they even use the purpose clause there. What sign do you do so that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? What work do you perform? You realize how nakedly, er, yeah, do this and we'll do it. Right? What sign? Show me and I'll do it. You know, I mean, this is such carnal worldly cosmos manipulation unbelievers do this all the time you know okay you, you got something you want me to do i'll do it but first you gotta first you gotta prove something you gotta prove that you love me right the world goes through all these manipulations So they suggest that a sign will be necessary for them 
to accept the divine origin of his message. And then they helpfully offer a recommended sign for him to perform. You know, they don't want, they don't recommend the walking on water miracle. <laughs> they don't recommend uh, a healing. He'd been healing all day. The crowds, the, the non-chasers, the residents of this region had been bringing, uh, bringing sick people around and, and they weren't inconveniencing him. They were laying them out in lines so that as he walked past, they could reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Uh, these guys, they want to interrupt his ministry there in, in Gennesaret. They want to stop the healings taking place. They want him to give them more food. Yeah, so they don't, they don't suggest a healing miracle. They don't suggest a walking on water miracle. They don't suggest uh, uh, casting out any demons. There's probably quite a few here in the proximity that could be cast out. They, uh, they have this hopeful miracle. See, you know, does this not describe our prayer life a lot of times? We have a problem, and so we're giving God the solution that we think he needs to do to solve our problem. It does not say that God is faithful and with our testing, he will accommodate our way of escape. It says that he has already provided the way of escape. The emphasis for our test is a part of his sovereign provision, just like the test itself is. So, you know, if are we wrong if we make suggestions to the Lord? I don't think so. Jesus did. He said, if possible, let this cup pass me by. But nevertheless... Not my will, but thine be done. Say, Father, I, I view this may be a solution, but I don't know, so make it clear. So they suggest that a sign would be necessary for them to accept the divine origin of his message, and they helpfully offer a recommended sign for him to perform. Now, where this nails them to the wall, under point B, this brazen request comes despite having seen numerous signs on previous days. And that very sign they were requesting the night before. This brazen request comes despite having seen numerous signs on previous days and having seen that very sign they were requesting the night before. So is this supposed to convince them that he's from God? Why didn't it convince them last night? Why aren't they falling on their face and worshiping the Lord God of the universe? This brazen request comes despite having seen numerous signs on previous days. John 6, 2. And having seen, or despite having seen, that very sign that they were requesting the night before. Verse 14 and verse 26. You'll note, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him, because why? What does it say in verse 2? Because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. It's the same terms, the same word, tosameo, the signs. So they've seen the signs, and so they became chasers. Not because they were humbled. Not because they were convinced he was from God. Not because they wanted to listen to what he had to say. But because he could do something for them. They wanted to follow Christ for what they could get out of it. Not for what he 
was delivering or with the message that he was communicating. People choose churches for exactly the same thing. They don't choose a church because of the message that God's delivering in that, in that church. They choose a church because of what they're going to get out of it. Oh, they got a great daycare program for my kids. Let's go to that church. They've got a bowling league. Let's go to that church. Or whatever their other consideration is. What, what will it do for me? And not, what is the message that that ministry is communicating? So they were chasing after him, it says in verse 2, because they saw the signs, not because they cared a whit about the message he was communicating, but because they wanted more signs. And they wanted those signs to be on their behalf. Not just that he's doing miracles, do miracles for us. Verse 14, they saw the sign. He fed them, he multiplied the loaves, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers, fragments from the five barley loaves. And then verse 14, when the people saw the sign, ta sameon, the identical vocabulary, which he had performed, they said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then what do their intentions become? Let's listen to what he has to say. Let's humble ourselves before the God of the universe. Let's, the kingdom of heaven here is at hand. No, they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. They're going to become the kingmakers. Isn't that a worldly approach? <laughs> like Lord Neville all over again, the kingmaker from the... Uh, War of the Roses, the English Civil War. You know, if you if 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 you are a kingmaker, if you can make him king, and he owes his kingdom to you, <laughs> that's right. Payback. You know, it comes back. What's for me now? I mean, look what I did for you. And then, and uh, you know, Neville actually managed to do it two or three different times. He he put a king in there and throw him down, and put another king in there and throw him down, and try to do the third one before he finally got the axe. All right. But if you can be the kingmaker, then they owe you. Like all these political advisors, you know, if you get your guy into office, you expect the, the, the payback. You're, you're the one that got him there. All right. So are they going to make him king? That's their plan. Obviously, that's not God's plan. The father will make him king. He already is king. The father will seed him at the appropriate time. Verse 26 Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. Jesus Christ nails them. They saw the signs, and yet that was not the motivation. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It's another uh, not but kind of formula, just like we have it in verse 27. Not the bread which perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. So there's a not but in verse 26. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That's why you're chasing me. You just want your belly filled. So how slimy is this? What, uh, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? You know Jesus has the, the most patient divine empowerment. He's filled with the Holy Spirit He's tender with them. He's patient with them because I wouldn't have been. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What sign do I do? Didn't I just do one last night? 
See, I'd have been a Moses. I'd have been hitting the rock and saying, you rebels, shall I give you water? That would have been me. I'd have failed. I'd have been a Moses. I'd have been worse than Moses. But that's what this is. You understand? Jesus, right here, is passing the very test that Moses failed. Moses blew it. Called them rebels and hit the rock twice. Jesus gives them more teaching. Gives them more teaching. In fact, we're going to see the escalation throughout this chapter. Their continuous demands for a sign are quite telling. Before we get to Matthew 12, let's just look here. You know, they show up in verse 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? We're hungry. <laughs> right? Uh, and he says, I know you're hungry, but that's not what you need. And they said, okay, well, we'll believe you, but, but what sign do you do? How about that food, food miracle? See how helpful they are. And then, uh, you know, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. How about doing some of that again? And then uh, he says, you know what? Moses didn't give you that bread. My father gave you, and he's giving you the true bread. And they're like, okay, give that to us. Lord, always give us this bread. And uh, so he teaches them some more. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. And he delivers this message down through verse 40. And again, every message he gives is the message to believe. It's the same message he gave them in, in uh, verse 29. Just over and over and over and over and over again. Well, what do they start doing in verse 41? They start grumbling. They start grumbling. They just want food. And uh, they're not interested in that, in that uh, spiritual food he's talking about. They're not interested in the eternal life he's talking about. All throughout this chapter, all they want is their belly filled. Uh, Matthew 12:39 is quite telling. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He'll go into the grave and on the third day be raised again like Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Now, signs, is, is it wrong to, to, uh, to recognize a sign? Is it wrong to expect a sign? No. You should expect a sign. If there's a prophet claiming that God has sent him, then you should expect a sign. But expecting is different from craving. And you see the term there in verse in Matthew 12:39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And I don't think I'm out of line to say that this John 6 crowd was craving. And they only wanted the sign to feed their bellies. All right. So what does he give them? Does he give them a sign? Gives them a message. They already have a sign. They got their sign last night. So instead, he delivers his great I am, the bread of life message. And that starts in verse 35 and takes us down through verse 65. John 6. Not everybody outlines this chapter the way I do, but this, this message actually comes in a series of escalating or more intense teaching. And it starts in verse 35, and it doesn't just stop with uh, verse 40. Some people stop it with verse 40. And then the Jews grumble, but he picks it up again in the second phase. And uh, he picks up the second phase, let's see, at 
verses 43 through 51, then there's another reaction. He goes from grumbling to arguing, and then he picks up the third phase. And in the third stage, it's in verses 53 through 58. And then the fourth stage comes in verses 61 through 65. And then you've got the disciples' reaction in verses uh, 66 and 67. Verse 67 is the one that's commonly labeled chapter 7, verse 1. All right? So... Uh, the, the great I am the bread of life message really stretches from verses 35 to 65 with interruptions mixed in and reaction in verses 66 and 67 on the part uh, and in following actually down through verse 72 um, through the end of the chapter. Does that make sense? Verses 35 to 65. All right. The first stage. Let's just break it down. I'm going to break it down for you by stages and reactions. A through H are the subpoints. Subpoint A, Jesus delivered the first stage of the bread of life message. And really, this is the whole message right here. When he comes back in the second stage and he adds flesh to it, when he comes back in the third stage and adds flesh and blood, he's not changing the message. He's not teaching something new. He is finding new ways to teach the same content. And every time he adjusts the methodology and he adjusts the metaphor, it's getting harder and harder for these carnally minded individuals to deal with it. So point A, so this is main point A here. Jesus delivered the first stage of the bread of life message. John 6, verses 35 through 40. The universal offer of food for eternal life is consistent with a grace through faith salvation offer. Well, let's look at it. Verses 35 through 40. Again, I, some of you are still writing. I realize it got wordy. All of these are going to be the subpoints under main point four that Jesus delivered his great I am the bread of life message. Subpoint A, stage one. Jesus delivered the first stage of the bread of life message in verses 35 through 40. The universal offer of food for eternal life is consistent with a grace through faith salvation offer. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am. That's the language of deity. That's the language of, of uh, Yahweh in, from Exodus chapter 3. I am was sent to redeem the nation of Israel out of Egypt. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. He who comes to me. Well, who's that? Whosoever, that's right. That was uh, that was me. In in September of 1973. That was you. At whatever moment. You placed your faith in Christ and believed. And, and maybe you can't remember the exact day, or maybe you're not. You're not sure what exact day that would have been, but there was a point. You weren't born saved. You were born an unbeliever, and then at some point. From the time you were born till now, hopefully, some point in between there, you got saved. And you went from being a child of darkness to a child of light. We call that your conversion event. So whatever point of time that was. Yeah, this, is, it, this verse does not give any names. It does not give any numbers. It does not say who it is. It just says he who, which is the universal language of whosoever. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst this is such beautiful poetry because the two halves of these statements define themselves 
So how do I come to Christ? Well, he who comes in the first part is parallel with he who believes in the second part. That's how you do it. It's by faith. Believing in Christ is coming to Christ. Coming to Christ is not something prior to belief. Coming to Christ is belief. What happens prior to that? Of course, the Father draws us. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. We'll deal with that as well. All right? So, again, verse uh, 35, He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, he's ordered them to believe. He's ordered them to work. Remember, work is an imperative. In verse 27, the imperative isn't do not work. The imperative is work. And then work is defined as belief. So he has ordered them to believe. Unbelievers who don't believe are disobeying the gospel. Because it's the Father's desire that all. He desires for none to perish. The invitation is given. And when it's rejected, it's disobedience. So he says, you have seen and yet you do not believe. You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. See, this is why the adversary is so busy actively blinding the eyes of the unbelieving. So that they might not see. You familiar with that passage? 2 Corinthians 4.4? 4? Alright. The audience that Jesus is speaking to has not believed, but they have seen. They have not been the object of Satan's blinding ministry. Matter of fact, I, I think that that description in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 de- demonstrates the nature under permissive will, what the adversary does during the church age. That's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 4. That's a church age passage. I don't know. I can't find a verse to prove that Satan had a blinding ministry in the Old Testament. But part of what he, the freedom that he has now in the church age Part of the sifting permission that he has in the church age is the active work. That's, that's why he's the God of this age. He has a greater freedom in the church than he ever had under Israel or Gentile stewardship. Anyway, he blinds the, the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. And of course, the uh, grace provision from the Father is to pierce that darkness, to pierce that veil, to open the eyes of the unbelieving. But here in this passage, they are still unbelieving, and yet they have seen. They have seen. See, they are capable of seeing. And they are capable of, be, of believing. He's ordered them to. They're capable of it, but they haven't. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And I love this. This passage, it, it, it teaches God's sovereignty and His election because all the Father gives me will come to me. That's God's sovereignty at work. But it also shows it's the, uh, the volition of man in accepting the salvation offer or rejecting it. The one who comes to me. I will certainly not cast out. Um, 
Let's get down through verse 40. Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Eternal security. You cannot be lost. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him. Now notice, verse 39 is the sovereignty side. All the Father gives me. Verse 40 is the volition side. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, seeing and believing, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's both and. It's not either or. The Calvinists insist on either or. Sovereignty has to be true and volition cannot be true. The Arminian uh, insists on either or. Volition has to be true. Sovereignty has to be modified. They don't like to say it, but they do it. I don't like to modify sovereignty. Sovereignty is sovereignty. How can I modify sovereignty? And yet notice, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. The Father's will included the provision of volition to humans and angels alike. Anyway, they're both true. We've gone through this in the past. So there's the offer. Work for the food that abides to eternal life. Believe in him whom he has sent. I am the one whom he has sent. I am the bread of life. Believe in me. You will have this bread. And never hunger. Never thirst. He who comes to me. This universal offer of food for eternal life is consistent with a grace through faith salvation offer. Proverbs 9, 1 through 6. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Really 1 through 11. But there's a side trip in there. So we label it. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3a, and verses 6 through 11. Let's look at those. Let's start with Proverbs 9. Proverbs 9. Spurgeon preached on this a lot. Preached on Isaiah 55 a lot. Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. We don't have any problem. The, the poetry of Proverbs refers to wisdom as a woman. Chachma is a feminine noun. Uh, wisdom as a woman is contrasted with the harlot, who's also a woman. And so in the metaphor of, uh, of Proverbs, uh, we have this in, in, in feminine terms. But I don't think anyone has any problem understanding this as Jesus Christ, understanding that the wisdom from Proverbs is the logos, the word from John 1. Uh, but it's it is poetry and it is a feminine noun, uh, and uh, some people kind of get really wrapped around the axles with the her, you know, thinking of Jesus in the feminine. Don't think of Jesus in the feminine. Jesus is masculine. But the wisdom in the in the parable in the in the uh, proverb is feminine. Anyway, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. In other words, she has done everything. All the work is done. Nothing was contributed to it by the invited guest. She's called, she has sent out her maidens. She calls. Interestingly enough, the invitation comes through stewardship, comes through uh, messengers. How blessed are those uh, whose feet are shod. And, and when you bring the good news, it's good to be a messenger. So she sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. So is that an obscure invitation? Is that an exclusive invitation? Is that a very quiet invitation? 
No, she's calling from the tops of the heights of the city, the, the highest place prominent to where the whole city can hear the invitation. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat of my food and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. It is a universal offer. The provision is made. The work is done. But the person who is going to avail themselves of it must obey the command, must respond to the invitation. The food is prepared. The wine is mixed. The table is set. The maidens are are there. Everything is done. It is finished. The work is complete. And these people who don't come will starve to death. They are not going to forsake their folly. They are not going to proceed in the way of understanding. They are going to remain in their darkness. Universal offer. Uh, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. you got to like a chapter that starts with ho. Ho. Don't want to end up with a Don Imus moment or anything or... Have a, I can use the word ho. It's biblical. It's right there. H-O. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Without money and without cost. It's a free gift. It is, it is uh, available. It must be purchased. It must be obtained, but your purchase won't cost you anything because the price has been paid. I love the way Robbie Dean phrases that when he says, grace is free, but it is not without cost. It is free to you and I because he paid the price. He was willing to pay the cost and he bore that cost. So you can buy... Wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? You realize this is identical to what Jesus was telling that crowd. He says, work for the eternal food, not for the perishing food. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Identical vocabulary. When these guys ate of the food and were filled, they were satisfied. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Listen that you may live. I love the universal offer. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. All right, uh, skipping down, there's some things with the Davidic covenant and the nation of Israel there, but let's get down to verse 11, uh, verse 6 rather. You have to handle verse chapter 55 in two ways. You have to, have to, ha, you have to handle chapter 55 corporately as it relates to the nation of Israel on a national basis. You have to handle chapter 55 individually as it addresses individuals on a personal basis. You have to handle it both ways because the text addresses it both ways. Uh, So the national deal comes to an end there in verse 5. We return back to the individual invitation in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is the, again, the universal law. Are the people that are excluded? Does he, does he tell people don't bother seeking? Does he, does he uh, delineate between those who should be seeking and those who should not bother wasting their time? Nope, and it is an order. It is an order. Uh, we may not understand it. It may seem to us to be different. It may seem, we may not seem to understand why a God would forgive us, why a God would save us, why a God would accept us back on the basis of grace through faith. Because we may be overwhelmed with our own sin, our own unworthiness, our own merit. We may not, it, it may not make sense to us it can't, that it can't be that easy. I've had unbelievers tell me it can't be that easy. I've got to be, there's got to be something harder to do. Like they're looking for some kind of 12 tasks of Hercules or something. You know, what do you want to do? How hard do you want it to be? All right, give a million dollars to my church and then believe. Right? <laughs> I, no, I would never tell them that. I would never tell them that. But what do you want to do? You want to add you want to add something to grace through faith? What do you want to add to it? How insane would that be? And if it doesn't make sense to our mind, remember our ways are not his ways. See verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. We quote that verse so much but we fail to quote that that passage comes in a context of a come unto me invitation where maybe our human thinking has a hard time resolving the nature of the invitation. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has his ways and he pursues those ways. Heading down obviously to verse 11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Now, in the context of evangelism, then what is the desire and what is the matter for which he sent it? All right. Say, Sean, we've got a visitor back there. Can you see what he needs? There you go. All right. About five more minutes. We're almost done. So the um, invitation comes. Seek the Lord while he may be found. When I try to give this sense of urgency in teaching about the rapture of the church, we can paraphrase that verse and say, get saved before we're out of here. <laughs> right? You're much better off becoming saved before the trumpet. Because those that are left behind are left behind. Placed back under the dominion, uh, the stewardship of Israel, but under the dominion of Antichrist with, with restraint lifted. So to me, Isaiah 55, 6, that uh, appears in the Old Testament becomes very vivid in our own application. Call near upon him while he is call upon him while he is near. You know, first advent he was near. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
glory is from the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the word tabernacled among us. The word was near in first advent. Think about the church age, though. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The body of Christ is now everywhere. To every nation, tongue, land, people. Christ is here because Christ is in you and you're in Him. I go to Kiev, Christ is there. If He was near in the first advent where He was limited to one body, one location at a time in His own kenosis where He limited Himself to the finite structures of a human body, when He was in on the eastern shore, He was on the eastern shore. And when He was on the western shore, He was on the western shore. And they had to hound Him down and chase Him down. Now where is He? Christ in you, the hope of glory. But Christ, when, when Jesus said, to the extent you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. The bride of Christ, the body of the Lamb, is now in all 24 time zones of this planet. So, when you look at seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near, I can't think of a greater age than the church age to where that verse becomes more vivid. Probably in the millennium, maybe it'll get more vivid because He will be here bodily, reigning on the throne, and the bride will be here and, and so forth. But in my mind, the church age is a powerful application for Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Now, Israel, of course, was the steward. That was their charter. They were uh, commanded to be the steward nation to preach Christ to this lost and dying world, to let the Gentiles know the things of the Lord. And uh, they, uh, they weren't exactly wrapped up in that, in that gospel message. All right, we'll come back and do the other stages of this next week. The CALF are at this point unmasked by their grumbling they are unmasked. They're no longer called a crowd at this point. They're called Jews in verses 41 and 42. And you say, of course they're Jews. Why is he calling them Jews? We've, we've touched on this a number of times in this study. Yes, they're Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. Almost everybody in the gospel are Jews, except for the, the odd, you know, the occasional Roman, the centurion or Pilate or the Phoenician woman. There were only a handful of Gentiles mentioned in the Gospels. Everybody else are Jews. But the title Jew that we have here, and, and throughout the Gospel of John mainly, but when we have the Jews, like in verse uh, 41, the Jews were grumbling against him, um, you recognize that the, that the application is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the, not only the racial Jews, the observant Jews, those that were following the dictates of their form, the early form of rabbinic Judaism that they were under, under the Pharisee control. That's the use of Eudaios in the Gospel of John. We're not talking about their race. They were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. They all were Jewish. Notice it's the Jews with a capital J. I like what New American Standard did with that. That is the religious leading authorities, the observant, religious, pharisaical, legalistic Jews. We'll deal with that next week. I'll, I'll define that better for you next week. All right, 11 o'clock. Do we have any questions?
All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you for our visitor, whoever he was, whatever he needed. Father, uh, pray for his needs, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.